that's a common misconception mm-hmm. for those who are nonverbal. They're like, well, she doesn't understand what you're saying or he doesn't know what you're saying. And I'm like, just because he, they can't reciprocate in the way that is socially acceptable or socially normal doesn't mean that they can't reciprocate. We just have to give them a means or a way to reciprocate. Welcome to Free Wheeling with Cardinal Milk. I'm your host, Cardinal Mykoff, global disability advocate and a wheelchair warrior. This podcast shares stories of people with various disabilities and shines new light on accessibility topics. Our goal is to knock down barriers so we can roll through life a little easier and build a community to do this together. I encourage you to rate, review, subscribe, and follow this podcast and text me at 470-588-1215 with comments and suggestions. We welcome you on our journey towards equality for all. I have Sammy from the Netflix TV show, The Circle, on here to talk today about her work with disabilities and especially in the autism spectrum. Welcome, Sammy. Hi. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. <laughs> this is actually I, my first podcast that's like this. All my other oh, podcasts yeah. have literally <laughs> just been like, how is the circle? Is it like quarantine? Yeah. Is it like this? You know, like the typical same questions, but yours is so different. That's why I was like, yes, absolutely. I will do it. Oh, I love it. And I know, I mean, the focus here is not what you did on the circle at all. It's I really just want to understand what it's like working with people with disabilities from a non-disabled perspective, and which is why I love doing this podcast, because I learned so much from all different areas of life and different disability spaces. So tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into working with people with disabilities. And yeah, absolutely. So I actually got my I received my undergrad, my bachelor's degree in Pennsylvania. And I originally wanted to work in pediatrics going into my undergrad. And then slowly I realized that I was really bad at science, (laughs) like actual like chemistry, biology, like things like that. So I was like, okay, no. And then I went into um, psychology and I absolutely fell in love. And psychology has always been something since I was younger. People have always told me I have an old soul. You know, they've always (laughs) told me like, you're so easy to talk to. And I always found adults or people older than me confiding me for different things. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to do psychology. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And then I did a program where um, my, one of my criminology classes, it was just like an extra credit course that I took um, that kind of fell into psychology because criminology and psychology really go well together, of course. And I did a class and um, it was held inside a prison And I would take a class. So it'd be like 10 people in my class with a group of inmates and they were all female inmates. And, um, we did that for a whole semester and it was amazing. And so I decided to go into psych criminology. And so I double majored and I worked in a jail and I hated it. (laughs) So I was like, well, what am I going to do with my life? And I had been wanting to move to Miami for so long. So I was like, just, you know, F it. And I packed up all my things. And two weeks after graduating college, I drove to Miami. And um, there was this girl because I had wanted to go to FIU, Florida International University. Um, I had wanted to go to FIU for a couple years. And so I had talked to this girl through Facebook who was looking for a roommate. We ended up becoming really good friends. And so we decided, like, we're going to move together. All right, cool. She was already in Florida. She already was going to FIU. So that was easy. We lived together and she was working in ABA just like to, to get paid. She wasn't doing it because it's what she wanted to do for the rest of her life. It was kind of just like a get by job because as a therapist, as an RBT, you know, starting out, you don't really get paid that much. You're getting paid maybe 15 to $18 an hour. 
and you're working a lot of hours. Sometimes you're traveling between clients. You know, there's a lot, a lot going on. So, so she was just doing it kind of to get by. And so she was like, come apply. Cause I couldn't find a job. I was working at a restaurant, but it was so much hours and I just didn't like it. So I was like, okay, I went and applied. And my first client just, I fell head over heels. I was Aww. in love. I taught him how to read, how to write, how to interact, how to express himself. Like I, I was with him for so long and I will never forget his face. Like I just, I love him so much. And he was like it for me. That was it. And so mm-hmm. I've been doing, I've been an ABA for going into three years now. Just for those who don't know, what's ABA and RBT? Oh, absolutely. So ABA is um, applied behavior analysis and RBT is a registered behavior technician. So as a, as an RBT, you're working one-on-one with clients, either, you know, like I said, in my first company, I was working specifically with just autism, somewhere autism and ADHD or ADD, but strictly they had to have an autism diagnosis, ASD. So autism spectrum disorder, you'll see ASD as a lot of um, hyphenated in, in research articles and things like that when people talk about it. The company that I work for now is just pretty much any disability. I've worked with CP, so cerebral palsy. Um, a lot of my clients are nonverbal, so which means they don't speak. I'm currently teaching one of my clients sign language, which is really cool because I'm learning at the same time as she's learning. So it's like oh, cool. such a cool experience. It's like little things that really keep me going, like just her learning how to say help in sign language. That's just like such a big accomplishment for both of us. Mm-hmm. But Amazing. um, yeah, so then I've been doing I've been doing that. And I, I love it. I absolutely love it. It's so crazy how you kind of just like fell into it, right? Right. You said in a place and a time in your life where you're just like, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm kind of just like hopping around from job to job, just applied. And there you go. You kind of just fell into your lap. And what an incredible how it just like changed your life as well. It did. And it was such it was so funny how it happened, too, because when I wa- of course, like I said, when I went into college, I wanted to do pediatrics. So I knew I always wanted to work with kids. I've always done babysitting to pay for my bills in college. I was a nanny. So I pretty much raised these two kids for four years who I still talk to when I go back to Pennsylvania. I still go visit them. Like the coasters in my house have their faces on them. Like they're my kids, you know, like I taught her how to walk. I taught her how to ride a bike, the little boy. I taught him a lot of stuff too. And so, yeah, so kids have always been my main focus in the world and in life in general. And I'm the oldest of six sisters and two brothers. So I've always had younger kids around me. I've always, it's just always been natural to me. Mm-hmm. So it's just crazy how it just fell in my lap that this was what I'm doing. And then I had the most amazing supervisors at my original company that I started with and they just pushed me and I guess like hyped me up a little bit because I was, I was, I thought I was doing good, but when you have your supervisors and your regional coordinators telling you how great you're doing and how amazing of a super, I mean, how amazing of a therapist you are and how your, your clients are, there's so much progression that they're seeing in their treatments and how parents are requesting you like that's a really big accomplishment for a 21 year old who just moved to a different city and state moved literally miles from their family I was by myself I didn't have anyone here and for those people to be telling me that I'm doing an amazing job it's like Jesus like I didn't plan any of this but that's so cool that that's happening for me and so I kind of just took it and ran with it and now I'm, I'm I'm four classes away from receiving my master's in behavior analysis wow. and um yeah. So it's, it's been a crazy ride. It's been a roller coaster for sure. I feel like everything happens for a reason. One thing I like to tell people a lot, which I think is really cool, but 
I mean, it's also sad, but so I moved here and my grandmother, I hadn't seen my mom's mom. So my mom passed away um, in a car accident when I was two. Her birthday was actually yesterday. So that's really cool. She was her 45th birthday. So my grandmother, I hadn't seen for years, for maybe like 10 years. And she lived in Miami. And so when I moved to Miami, of course, I went to see her and she was in the hospital struggling, really sick. And I ended up living with her for the first month that I lived here because I couldn't find an apartment. So I was living in my car for like a week or two. I moved in with my grandmother and then she ended up passing away. But the day that she died, I kid you not, hand on the Bible, the day that she died. And I remember like, oh my God, I'm working for free. And I, I was freaking out. And, you know, I, and it was my last day of my two weeks. And right before I got the phone call from my sister that she passed away in the hospital, I had gotten a phone call from my realtor who was looking for apartments for me. And the apartment that I wanted had just gotten approved. So it was like my first apartment ever. So everything literally happened all in the same day. And I was like, of course, it's sad as shit. But I was like, cool, you know, like this means something. And Mm -hmm. I've just kind of taken it from there. And I've been through so much. And so it's crazy to look back now where I was before and what honestly what ABA and what being an RBT and a therapist and just working in this field has done for me. Wow, that's a I love listening to the story of how you came from different experience of life and then you've totally transformed it. Look at you, unstoppable. <laughs> um, it's such a, a reflection of you and your great accomplishments and the families that are requesting you. Yeah, it just it really shows when you put your love into stuff. It it shows. So I'm interested in learning more about um, the kids and the other people that you work with. What are some of those common misconceptions? that you see with people with disabilities, especially in the nonverbal community? Well, one thing I get when I tell people what I do, they're always like, wow, that's so hard. I bet you probably get beat up all day. And I feel like people think that children with autism or children with disabilities, especially those who are nonverbal, are super aggressive. And Mm. I get it because, I mean, in movies and television shows and a lot of people who talk about those with disabilities, it's like, oh, I got bit today. Oh, I have bruises, which is, which is, it's very common. Absolutely. 1000%. And I've, I've had my fair share of bites and kicks and bruises and punches. Right. But that's Mm -hmm. not what it is. Like (laughs) I don't, I don't go into work thinking I'm going to get beat up today. That's just not, that's just not how it goes. (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) Right. I mean, of course I've had my, I've had my clients who are very, very, very aggressive, but I think that's just a common misconception is that they're all super aggressive and that you're always going to get hurt, like being around these kids or even individuals, older individuals. And uh, what I will say though, I've had, I've heard people say that joke of the R word, R word strength. Like when people are, are too strong for their own good, which is very true. They are, we have to understand that their pain tolerance is a lot higher. Sometimes it depends because some clients I've had, are very, very sensitive. And like, you could touch them and they're like, ow, which is also kind of exaggeration. They just kind of want attention. But there's are there's those clients that are super strong. And you do have to be careful with but I would say the most common misconception is that they're like, this super aggressive community of people when it's mm-hmm. it's not like that at all. But more so for the nonverbal, like you had asked, I guess not any misconceptions. But what I've seen in working with schools, schools that aren't specifically for those with disabilities. So more general population of typically developing children, teachers and, and things who don't, people who don't have experience with 
the community of disabilities and those with, you know, nonverbal disabilities is that they don't understand anything. That's a common misconception mm-hmm. for those who are nonverbal. They're like, well, she doesn't understand what you're saying or he doesn't know what you're saying. And I'm like, just because he, they can't reciprocate in the way that is socially acceptable or socially normal doesn't mean that they can't reciprocate. We just have to give them a means or a way to reciprocate. So just like my client who I'm teaching um, sign language, who was unable to reciprocate any kind of interaction or communication before is now able to say, I'm tired. I want my bed. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Can I have the phone? I need help. You know, Mm -hmm. things like that. Now she's able to reciprocate those things. So that's one thing that I, that I've noticed a lot is that they just can't understand and it has nothing to do with that. We just have to give them means to communicate. Got it. And so do you more so, I guess I'm not really familiar with the behavior technician field. Is that more so, are you setting them up for success to go on to do something or are you helping them to, you know, allow them to enter school or. Absolutely. um, Yeah. So what they tell you in originally becoming an RBT um, is that every six months you will get, you will receive a new case, right. Or a new client, which doesn't necessarily always happen. I've had clients for years and a half. I've had clients for three months. It all depends on insurance and how things work, where services are provided, et cetera. But so basically we are that kind of common ground to giving implementing treatments to help them integrate either socially or with their family in school, it all really depends on where they are engaging in the behaviors that we want to target. So for instance, if we want to target non-compliant behaviors, like getting out of their seat in class and just running around the classroom. So we would go into the classroom and that's where we would provide our services to target that behavior because they're not acting out and they're not engaging in these behaviors at home. Or I've had Mm -hmm. clients who are amazing in school, don't have any issues, but then at home are super aggressive with their siblings and their mom. Or their parents. It's mostly the mother that I've, well, from personal experience is that the mom gets um, most of the aggressive tendencies just because they feel most comfortable with their mother. So it all depends on where the behaviors are that they're engaging in. I mean, I have a client who has services at home, at school, and has therapy in school besides an RBT. So they'll get occupational therapy, so OT, or they'll get physical therapy, PT. So it all depends really on the diagnosis the level of functioning, high functioning, low functioning, the treatment plan of what we're supposed to be there for and what we're supposed to do. Because some clients and some cases will need therapy for the rest of their life. You know, that's just the way life goes, I guess. Right. So it's field work and you're going out. So I was in speech therapy and I've done OT and PT all my life. And I remember- I'm sorry, what's your diagnosis? I have muscular dystrophy. Okay. So it's a progressive muscle wasting disease. And so when I was a kid, I had trouble doing P's, V's, M's, like all that. Pup, well, they uh, sound great pup. now. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was a, a lot of speech therapy growing up. And I remember going to a classroom where I would be one-on-one with that instead mm-hmm. of having come to the actual place of where it's happening. Right. So it sounds a little different. Okay. Do you work with the counselors? The school yeah, counselors? Okay. Absolutely. So of course, like in schools, if we're doing if we're doing um, sessions in school, there's an IEP that we have to um, sure abide by and, and all that. And we have to work with the school and work with the teachers and work with the other therapists. 
Mm -hmm. Um, like my one client, I have to coordinate with the PT and the OT, you know, what they're doing, what I'm doing so that we can all work together as a team, right? That's the main goal. What we want to do is implement the same type of treatment across all fields, because that is going to most likely provide the client with the most success. If we're all commonly working on the same thing. And there's some things that like the OT works on or the PT works on that they can, they can kind of intersect with each other and collaboratively work on the same thing, but in their own separate way. Right. And then there's things that the OT and the PT can tell us to do as the behavior therapist that we can use. Right. If we, if we know, for example, for my one client, she loves to jump. Right. And so she does that a lot in PT. She does that a lot in physical therapy when they're walking and when they're doing certain things, she loves to jump. So now I know that when she's engaging in her negative behaviors or her problematic behaviors, I can tell her to jump and that'll slowly calm her down. Of course, there's what we as behavioral therapists have to think about more so is escape behaviors and attention behaviors. Right. So like if she's engaging in her problematic behaviors and she knows that I'm going to just tell her to jump all the time. And she can get out of whatever her task is, then we have to kind of figure that out on our own. But all in all, like in general, just working together on the IEP and having those meetings, it's more so the supervisors. So BCBA, a certified behavior analyst, sorry, a board certified behavior analyst. Is that what you're working to become? Is that the next level? Yep, that's the next level. So you start out as an IBT and then you can become a BCABA, which is an assistant behavior analyst. So they get paid more than what I get paid, but less than a supervisor. And then the next level would be to become a supervisor. So that's kind of like the end goal if you want this to be your life, because you're not really going to make a profession or a living out of being a therapist or an RBT. I mean, I feel like the most that you can get paid as as an assistant is maybe like $36 an hour, depending on where you're located. And then Mm -hmm. as as an RBT, I feel like maybe the most you'll ever get is maybe $22 an hour. So it depends on on what you're doing. And if you map it out and you think about it, like if you're working 9am to 6pm and you have three clients, but they're all in different places and you have to drive it, it adds up. So I would say for anybody that wants this to be their field to go BCBA and BCABAs. So the assistants, this is a little fun fact for anybody that's listening who is in the ABA field or, or looking to become an, therapist or anything like that they're slowly getting rid of bcabas which is the assistance so that that little middle step between an rbt and a bcba because insurances don't want to pay assistance anymore Mm. because some companies aren't using them correctly so basically the assistant is supposed to do like you know treatment plans and just different kind of activities and stuff they're kind of like that middle ground whereas like all an rbt really should be doing is providing the treatment that their supervisor is telling them to provide, right? Giving them the treatment plan and how to implement it. And then just taking data, constantly taking data on whatever they're doing. Whereas the BCABA is supposed to overlook the data, make sure you're doing everything right. Just what an assistant would do, making sure everything is being provided correctly and just doing that extra step so that the BCBA doesn't have to worry about all this extra stuff. But some companies aren't using their BCABAs the correct way. They're using their assistants not right. And also insurances don't want to pay BCABAs anymore. So Mm. I would skip that step if that's what your next step is from being an RBT. I would say just shoot straight for BCBA and becoming a supervisor. And it sounds like 
clients pay you through insurance or is it private? Yep. So insurance is all hell, living hell. <laughs> Insurances are literally the worst. I kid you not. Like I've had clients who are super high functioning who maybe need like five hours a week for therapy and they'll get like 30 hours a week that they don't need. But if you don't use those 30 hours, then there's a possibility that their services could just be taken away. Cause they're like, okay, well we gave you 30 hours and you're only, wow. only using five. So you don't need them. But then there's other clients who receive 10 hours a week and it's a super low functioning client who needs help in every way possible. And there's nothing we can do about it. So it's super frustrating, but yeah, so there's a lot of insurances. I would say that Medicaid is probably the best insurance to use mm-hmm. um, with our services. And that's what's that's what I've seen given the most hours to my clients. Um, and they pay better. So my company goes off of not just a, a set pay rate. My pay depends on the insurance of the client that I'm working with. Wow, this is actually, this is so fascinating. I know that the conversation <laughs> a changed a little it changed a little bit from just talking about people with disabilities to actually learning about a whole industry, which I had it's no crazy. idea about. It's super crazy. It's super stressful for those who don't understand it. Like when I first started, I was like, none of this makes sense. I hate it. I don't understand. I just want to help kids. Like, leave me alone. I don't care. But now it's like, I have to pay attention because I recently received a promotion from my company. So I've become, a, thank you. So I've become a student analyst. So I'm kind of like a mentor for the RBTs and I'm kind of just like, an assistant for the assistants. <laughs> so I'm kind of like doing the the bitch work of everybody. Okay. And but I love it hey, because it's a ladder. Listen, get there. I'll do it. I'll do it for as long as I need to because I also when you're getting your BCBA, so in my master's program, you have to collect hours. So fifteen hundred hours of indirect and direct hours. So direct hours are any hours that you provide one on one service with your client. That's direct. Any indirect is things that you're doing that you're not getting paid for. So doing treatment plans and filling out data sheets. And um, so yeah, you have to collect your hours. So right now as a student analyst, I'm just collecting hours because I'm doing a lot of paperwork for a million different cases. So it works out. I love it. Cool, cool. And what are some of the behaviors that you're trying to analyze and documenting? Yeah, so a lot of the um, most common ones are physical aggression. Um, elopement and physical aggression can be seen many different aspects. It can be hitting, biting, kicking, pushing, pulling hair, whatever, pinching. And then for elopement is any behavior or any instance of the client removing themselves from the task at hand. So if my client, if we're both sitting at the table and I pull out a math sheet and I'm like, okay, here, here's your pencil, do your math sheet. And my client gets up and runs out, runs away. That's elopement. So we pretty much just, those are most likely taken on frequency. So we just collect how many instances that has happened. And then it goes into like more articulate things like partial interval recording where we have to record every minute for the two hours that we have session every minute the client engages in that behavior. So it gets really complicated, but the most common ones I would say are physical aggression, task refusal. So just saying like, no. If I say, hey, touch your nose, and they say, no, that's task refusal. And I would just literally put a tally mark for, nope. And then elopement and saliva play. That's another big one. Clients putting things in their mouth, non-edible items in their mouth. Got it. But yeah, those are the most common ones. Where do you see those kinds of behaviors? Is it 
aligned to any particular disability or is it just kind of just it's every everyone's different honestly I feel like I've been asked that question before even in school like we get asked questions like that in papers and discussions and it's interesting because I work with children I mean the oldest that I've worked with is 13 and I feel like a child puts their hands in their mouth anyway you know and children are gonna say no I don't want to do that when they don't want to do something anyway you know so that's a real hard thing to differentiate between diagnosis and just regular behaviors of a child. And that's actually a big discussion yeah. that we've had in school. And that's a, a lot that we, of what we learned through, especially in ethics, because how can you punish a behavior if it's a normal behavior that you're seeing across all, all six-year-olds of typically um, developing children and those with di- diagnoses. So it's, it's hard. I guess it just really depends on how well you know the client and how in-depth their treatment plan is you know a lot of treatment plans will describe exactly what the client is diagnosed with what kind of behaviors they engage in and some won't and you kind of just have to fish it out for yourself Mm -hmm. so it all really just depends across cases and the environment in which these refusal behaviors happen does that impact them to be more compliant or non-compliant with the task at hand it could be the family that they're surrounded with or the classroom that they're surrounded with. Absolutely. I've noticed how do, that. How does the environment change? Yeah, I've noticed that with my clients um, when I'm starting out with a client and I'm trying to gain the control with the client, that instructional control. Because at first, I mean, it depends, of course, throughout clients. But at first, some clients are really hard to get gain instructional control because they're like, who are you? Mm-hmm. You new person. I don't care right. about anything you say. And some clients are easy and they're like okay I'm, I'm ready you know it just depends um but I've noticed that a lot of teachers have that like higher power even above parents sometimes to be like sit down time to your work and the kid will be like okay sorry <laughs> you know right. yeah whereas like with parents it's kind of like they're lenient because they know kind of what they can get away with at the same mm-hmm. time you know what I'm saying like kids know that behavior isn't gonna acting on one way isn't going to necessarily mean this kind of punishment to parents because they don't always follow through. So I would say that the best, I guess it all depends really because I I can't even say one way or one environment and the other because I've seen clients who don't listen to the teachers at all. And I've seen clients who listen to the teachers and I've seen clients who don't listen to their parents, but then clients who are also afraid of their parents. So (laughs) it's all, it's all over the place. Sure. Okay, I want to kind of shift the conversation a little bit about how companies can work to include and hire people with disabilities. And what are some of those things that you would recommend? I know our company specifically is working to have a whole program of hiring people with disabilities. That's great. What do you recommend? So I've actually done some indirect work to where I went to sessions and I acted as the interviewer for older um, individuals diagnosed with disabilities who are in an interview. And a lot of what I noticed, I mean, the, the two people that I worked with were like 26 and 28. Um, there were two separate cases and I just sat there and pretty much read off a piece of paper and asked them questions, you know, and worked with them. More high-functioning older cases you see a lot of literal terms. If you ask questions, it, I would just like joking and, and asking questions that they, they take things very literal and things are very like 
strict and down to the point. If I ask a question, like, for example, with one of the clients that I did it with, I was like, oh, what do you think you bring to the table? And he straight up straight face was like, I'm the best worker you will ever have. Mm-hmm. Because he truly believed that. And my first instinct was to laugh because I'm taking that as like a joke. Oh, that's funny, you know? But he was being literal. He didn't laugh. He was very serious and he took it very serious. And I didn't laugh, of course, because I'm, I mean, of the, the instance that I was in. But in my head, I was like, oh my gosh, he's so cute. I would laugh at that. But we have to be careful with things like that because that very well could discourage him if I laughed. He was very aware of emotions just so that he didn't share any i don't i didn't see him smile at all or laugh at all throughout the conversation but when i was laughing he was like you're happy you know he's able to tell me those certain things so i guess just to be very aware i mean i'm sure if if there's a company that's willing to and looking to hire those with disabilities then i would expect that they would have the knowledge and the background and understanding of what comes with disabilities Mm -hmm. um so i would say to do your research (laughs) for sure but yeah it I, I guess just to be extremely open-minded and be aware. That's the biggest word I can use. Be aware, be aware, be aware always. Um, because there's a lot of behaviors that and character characteristics that come with disabilities that we don't necessarily understand, especially for someone who doesn't have a background in disabilities or ABA or behavioral therapy and thing like things like that. So just, just be aware and be compassionate. <laughs> right. Always being a, kind person is right. key. <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> as hard as I, it may be for some people. Yeah, it can be. It doesn't come second nature to everyone. Well, I, I feel like being a behavior technician and like watching people's behaviors and how they react to it is a little bit like a super, superhuman power because <laughs> I'm sure you're like the best people watcher. Yeah, <laughs> I get world. made fun of all the time by my friends and my boyfriend. I'm like always just um, he'll be like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm watching. <laughs> I'm just like, Jeez, you creep. I just love watching people. And, and just, it's so funny. Like we were walking our dogs the other day and I used to go to, well, before Corona happened, I would go to the dog beach all the time, but it's been closed. And um, I saw, I know like everybody that's at the dog beach. And this one guy, I didn't realize he lived in my complex and he walked right by me. Now on the dog beach, he knows my dogs by name. He knows my face. He doesn't know my name. Usually people don't know my name. They know my dog's names. And we've <laughs> talked before. We've had conversations. You know, I know his dogs. I don't know their names. But he walked right by me like he's never seen me before. And I'm like, that's so funny because he's so used to me being in context on the beach. So mm-hmm. out of context, he doesn't know what I look like. He doesn't remember what I look like. He doesn't remember my dogs. Nothing. He just walked right by me like he didn't know me. I looked at my boyfriend. I was like, oh my God, so how cool is that? And I'm like going on and he's like, can you stop for five seconds? But I bring everything <laughs> in the psychology and I just think it's so cool how the mind works. And um, yeah, so it's a blessing and a curse. It's just fascinating to watch different people's behavior and how they react in social situations and out in public. And yep. do you ever see kind of a correlation between animals and like their behavior and humans and their behavior, how they react to different things. Cause like just being at the dog park. Yeah, no, that's so funny because I was actually just reading something about, so I have two, two dogs and a cat and I was reading an article about animals. Oh my God. I sound like such a nerd. Um, I was reading an article and, um, it was saying how cats actually look at humans as cats, as like fellow cats. They don't look at us as humans. Yeah. So like, when your cat is like rubbing up against you and like 
you ever notice when a cat's playing with you, it like kind of bites yeah. you a little bit harder than you you would expect. Whereas like my right. dogs bite me and it doesn't even feel like anything because they know mm-hmm. I'm a human. They don't look right. at me as like another dog. Whereas when my dogs play with each other, they like make each other bleed because they don't care. Sure. Because they're the same animal. My dogs would never bite me hard. They've never left a mark on me. Mm-hmm. They've never nothing. So they don't treat me like another dog. They treat me like a human. Whereas like my cat will come over and she'll like scratch me and bite me because she looks at me as like another cat. So it oh, made so much sense. I was like, oh my God, that's so, that makes so much sense. But yet she knows that my dog is a dog because when she plays with my dog, they go, they go hard with each other and they like, but she looks at me as like another cat. And like, hmm. I just think that's super, super cool. I've always been so fascinated by just psychology and behavior. And- yeah. It's super cool to think about. And like, mm-hmm. even so my two dogs are very, are very different when it comes to personality and behaviors and I can tell you what my dogs are going to do 10 seconds before they do it most (laughs) definitely because I watch I know everything about my animals and I watch their every move so like on the beach it's so funny because I'll be like watch oh king is about to do this and then he does it and it's just hilarious because my one dog is very goofy he's a great Dane so he's very big and goofy and literally like from Mickey Mouse goofy that's him he's like do all the time (laughs) and then my other dog ace she's like the smartest most sophisticated bad bitch of a dog and (laughs) she just like when she's on the beach she just runs that bitch like she just she's always just like she kind of reminds me of like um the blonde from mean girls she just thinks she's like the best yes regina george she thinks (laughs) she's like the best dog on the beach it's just it's just funny to know their personalities and see how different they are and it's super interesting really take it everywhere that you go it's kind of just a part of you now (laughs) like i can't i can't leave it (laughs) yeah So another question and topic that I had was I saw on your Instagram, obviously I stalked you like probably everyone else has, but (laughs) (laughs) um, I know you have a brother and he was diagnosed with Crohn's and I wanted to know what that experience is like, um, the journey to get that diagnosis. I know very much what it was like to go five, six years to then finally get a diagnosis and that relief. So talk a little bit about that and that journey. Yeah. So it was really stressful. Um, my brother's kind of always been my best friend. I mean, of course, I love all my siblings the same, but there was always something about my brother. Like, we, he, no matter how, my brother's 11, I'm 25. But it was just always something. I just always was connected with my brother. And my I had moved into my new apartment. So my first apartment was like trash. It was like a shitty apartment that I was just doing to get through. And I had no money. And I was working 22 hours a day, seven days a week. And it was yeah. the most stressful time of my life. It was bad. So I moved into my new apartment in August of 2019 and no, 2018, sorry. It was super stressful, super, super, super stressful. So my aunt, I was raised by my aunt, my uncle. And if you watch the show, she is the one that came and gave me my video. Yeah, it was so sweet. Yeah, so it's her son. It's actually, so my brother is my cousin um, by, you know, technical terms, but he's my brother. She came and stayed with me for a weekend and we went shopping because I didn't have any furniture because I didn't have any money. And I'm, I was really like lonely. And just when you're when you're sad and your apartment has no furniture and you're just there by yourself and I didn't I don't have anyone here. So it was like I was just so depressed. I hated life. I wanted to come home, but I didn't want to feel like I failed. So my aunt came and stayed with me. She left. And then a couple of days later, she was like, I wanted to tell you while I was there, but I just couldn't do it. There's some things that I have to tell you. And I'm like, Jesus, what? Like, what could be happening? And she's like, so your brother Gavin 
is really sick, but we don't know what's wrong with him. And I'm like, what? so this was a year and a half ago. And I was like, what do you mean? You don't know what's wrong with him. And she's like, he's been losing a lot of weight. So in like a month and a half, two months, he lost like 15 pounds. And mm-hmm. maybe even more. I don't really exactly know the number. She was like, he's been losing a lot of weight. You know, you can literally see his bones through his skin. And we've been getting him tested at the hospital and, you know, all these doctors and nobody knows what's wrong with him. They tried saying that they thought it was a thyroid thing because he was losing all this weight. And they were like, no, it's not. So they ruled that out. They, they thought it was leukemia, but then they ruled that out. And so, you know, my parents were stressed and like, we don't know what's wrong. We have no idea what's wrong. Then finally, they gave him the diagnosis of Crohn's. And it was the saddest but most relieving moment of like <laughs> ever because yeah. it was just going in and out of the hospital all the time. I remember I flew home because um, I just, you know, wanted to be with my family and we didn't know what was going on. And I have the picture of me and my brother that the minute I got in the car and you can literally see like the bones of his elbows and his knees and you can see his entire spine and his his collarbone and just everything. Like his, his face was all sunken in and his eyes were sunken in. And mm. it was just, it was probably the scariest thing in my life to be real because he was only nine years old at the time when all this was happening. And I was like, there's no way that this can be happening right now. And part of me also felt really selfish because during the time that this was happening for my brother, it was probably the highlight of my progression in just life in general, because I was working at a really good job and I was making a lot of money. I wasn't working that many hours and I was just living life. I was in Miami. I was, you know, start, I just started school. It was like the best time for me, but Mm -hmm. the worst time for my family. And I just remember my parents like crying and, and very, very on edge. Like you couldn't say anything in my house during that time. Right. And it just sucked. It was a really shitty time. And then once we figured out what was wrong, everyone kind of went through that time of depression being like, okay, so he's got a diagnosis of something that he will have for the rest of his life that we can keep under control, but also has killed people in the past. So what the hell do we do now? Right. Um, so we went through that kind of sad phase. And now I would say probably in the last like seven, eight months, we've gotten to that phase of like, fuck yeah, we're going to take this shit on head on and we're going to do everything we can to be there for my brother and just like stop being so sad about shit. We got to be grateful because he's here and he knows what's wrong and he knows how to handle it and he's okay. Like at first he was like so scared. Oh my God, it's going to make me cry. He was like scared to go to school. It was like he couldn't control his bowels and stuff. Mm. And um, hold on, sorry. Yeah, it's, I know, I know a similar experience of what that was like of just going through a long time trying to figure out what it was and that feeling of relief, but also sadness. So it's like a good and a bad thing when you figure out what it is. Um, so when I found my out my diagnosis, it was a relief, but also it was like, well, what's the rest of life going to look like ahead of me? Yeah. And how is the family going to deal with that? And there's so much uncertainty and unknown what's next. But it it was kind of like that flip of the switch that you experienced was like, well, you have two pathways. You can either be really sad and depressed about it, or you can take it 
people on and make a life out of it and advocate and be supportive and champion each other's success. Exactly. And that's kind of what we had to do, especially because I felt like my brother's so young. So like we have to be there and be a supporting system because what the hell else can we do? We can't just sit here and sulk all day. So, you know, we've been doing a lot. We've been doing, I've currently just been raising money for him by cameo. We almost reached $2,000, which is super cool. And, um, we're hopefully going to have the fundraiser still. We obviously with Corona, we don't know what's going to happen with everything with the walk and the fundraiser that we're having. But you know, my cast from the circle is so supportive and I couldn't, I couldn't even like, I couldn't even thank them more than I feel like I have already. But yeah, it's just been, it's been a roller coaster. And you know, my, my parents have a chef now. They hired a chef that specifically comes in and just cooks for my brother and kind of meal preps for like the each week and make some different foods and you know he has his cheat days and he gets to have fun with it and you know um yeah so we've been doing really well my brother's gained weight and he's been doing good you know he had his infusions and those infusions are scary as hell because anything can really happen your body can react any kind of way and he did have a bad reaction at one point to one of the infusions that my parents ended up telling me about um because he has asthma too so he's got you know some issues his body was like failing to one of the infusions. So it's scary. It's, it's an up and down all the time. And there's days he feels amazing. And then there's days where his body hurts and his stomach hurts. So right now he's in remission, I guess is what they call it. So he hasn't had any, like any instances of anything happening, but, and I guess it probably is paid a lot towards the chef because he really does a lot for my brother like what times types of food he can eat and stuff but yeah my parents have taken literally every precaution that they can and just trying to raise awareness and there's still so much that people don't know about Crohn's yeah and tell me a little bit more about Crohn's to be completely honest with you I don't really know much about it either um okay. I've asked I've, I mean I've, I've talked to a million people that have Crohn's especially since I decided that I wanted to raise money through cameo with Crohn's I've talked to a lot of people who have it And the most common thing that I get is just like, it has everything to do with like your colon and your bowels and you can have a flare up depending on what kind of foods you eat or, you know, stress and things like that. But more flare ups, more, some, sometimes it's worse for others. I don't know if you've watched the UK um, circle seasons, but the second season of the UK circle, one of the contestants is a Crohn's survivor. Like she had, she had a colonoscopy bag and not a survivor. I'm sorry. I probably sound ignorant because I don't really know the terminology necessary to go with Crohn's, but she had a colonoscopy bag and she has like a huge scar on her stomach from having Crohn's. And so some people it's worse for, it's, it's all different for everybody. I guess it's just like every kind of diagnosis because I feel like even though just like autism, right? Autism has the same name for everything. Everybody that may be diagnosed under certain Right. Um, instances, but it doesn't look the same in everybody. It sounds like just like listening to what you're saying, where you go for the and who you rely on during these dark times is your family, your brother, your, your mom, your dad. Even though they're, it's your aunt and your cousin, they're they're family. No, that's yeah. They're so I still consider you know my brother. I don't even think about them. Of course, I call my aunt and KK, and I call my but I call my brother my brother. You know, I don't call him my cousin. I call yeah. my sister my sister. There isn't. That label doesn't really matter so much. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been so amazing. Did you have anything else to share? Any? No, I loved it. Advice or anything? <laughs> no, I feel like I just rambled so much. I wish I could go back. <laughs> but no, I love talking. I love talking to you and and talking about this stuff. This is the thank first. You. 
uh, podcast that I've done that has talked about this. And I'm sure when my family listens to it, they're going to be so happy. And they're going to love yeah. it. Um, I so. really just wanted to share your story. And, you know, there's always one side of a person that's shown on these reality TV shows, right? Of course. And, and on social like, media. There's com- there's the completely opposite person who you are, which that's what I was like. I was fascinated. I was like, I really want to interview her and like learn more <laughs> about her experience with Aww. the work and her disabilities and like what her brother and everything. So thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you for even contacting me. And I think that would be really cool for you to, I can put you in contact with uh, the girl who was diagnosed with Crohn's from the UK circle season oh, that two. Would be so cool. Um, and I think that, that would be a really good, good topic for you to talk about. And just like, if she wants to talk about, it, I don't, I don't really know her that well, but I'm sure she would love to talk about it. She's very open about her, you know, her diagnosis and the things that she's been through. So I think that would be yeah. awesome for you guys to get in contact and, and to talk about those things. And I would love to hear it, to be honest with you. I would love to hear what she's gone through as just an adult with Crohn's. Sure. Yeah, I'd love it. Feel free to pass her over. Um, you can email me or DM yeah, me on Instagram. for sure. So. Absolutely. Oh, wait, what's your Instagram? I'll send her your Instagram right now. It's Carden of Milk, C-A-R-D-E-N. That's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> okay, I it's just funny, like you. some people like it takes them a minute, but then some people get <laughs> it. It's always fun reactions. Well, thank you, Sammy, so much. Absolutely. I was so excited to have Sammy on the show and thankful to have her explain a little bit more about the behavior technology field and her family's journey going through her brother's diagnosis with Crohn's. Every type of diagnosis is always an emotionally triggering time for anyone in their life. And it's reassuring to hear they've kind of settled into it and are working to become advocates for her brother through promoting awareness to raise money for your cure through Cameo. If you want to learn more about Sammy and donate to helping her brother, you can follow her on Instagram at it's Sammy, S-A-M-M-I-E-E. And also you can catch her on the Netflix show, The Circle. Feel free to text me at 470-588-1215. I'd love to hear from you and let me know your thoughts, feedback, and what you want to hear on future episodes. All right, I'll see you all next week. Bye.